I want to delve further into exactly what it was that women were experiencing in their trying to go to medical school. They just wanted to study medicine. And here there's men throwing tobacco spit at them. There's throwing spitballs, mud, run eggs. I wanted to know more and I wanted to, to peel back the curtain and see exactly what it was that, that inspired them to keep going in the face of all that. Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. Hi, I'm Olivia Campbell. I've been a freelance journalist for about 10 years now. I mostly write about women, history, and medicine. I have three sons, and I live outside of Philadelphia with them and my husband and our cat. And welcome to Sylvia and me. Olivia, thank you so much for being here with me today. And you mentioned history, medicine, women. Well, that kind of brings us to uh, the title of your first nonfiction and your recently, very recently published book, Women in White Coats, How the First Woman Doctors Changed the World. And, you know, in today's uh, world, we have the first woman vice president, we have so many women in Congress, we have uh, women who are you know, doing things that uh, we never really thought women would be doing. But you even took it a step further. And we looked, you looked all the way back to the 1800s. And can you tell us why um, did you even think about women and doctors? What was the inspiration? What motivated you to take three years and really do research? I first heard about this, um, this topic through, I read about two riots. There was a riot in Philadelphia. And then about a year later, there was a riot in Edinburgh, Scotland. And this is, these are both in the Victorian era in the 1800s. Um, and they were both almost exactly the same issue. It was men throwing temper tantrums, throwing violent fits when women dared to appear beside them in the classroom at medical school. So I, I said, okay, these two are too similar. There's something going on here. I wanna delve further into exactly what it was that women were experiencing in their trying to go to medical school. They just wanted to study medicine. And here there's men throwing tobacco spit at them. There's throwing spitballs, mud, run eggs, you know, covering their dresses with junk, chasing them home after the class. They let a loose sheep into the exam room in one case. That you know, it's, it's the intolerance, the harassment that they they dealt with. I wanted to know more, and I wanted to to peel back the curtain and see exactly what it was that that inspired them to keep going in the face of all that. Well, you know, one of the amazing things, if you think about it, is women have always been healers. You know, they've taken care of their family. You watch them in any of the old movies really taking care of any patient, anyone who's sick. And yet back in the 1800s, there weren't, women were really dying from illnesses that could have been prevented uh, dying because they didn't want to go to a male doctor and, and they weren't really treated properly. So you started talking about this woman 
Elizabeth Blackwell. Tell us a little bit more about Elizabeth Blackwell. She's pretty well known in this country, but I, the story I tell of her is not as well known, I don't think. I don't think people realize that she went to London and started a whole other medical school for women there. Um, but she's the first licensed woman MD to practice in America. Um, she had a terrible time getting into medical school. She applied to so many schools and just got turned down merely uh, you know, on the sake of being a woman. She finally gets into a school. She gets accepted as a joke. So she applies to Geneva College, a small country school in New York. And they think uh, the administrators are like, okay, we don't want to be the ones to say no to a woman. So we're going to let the students decide if she can get come and go here or not. So they put it to the students. They say, okay, should we admit this woman who's applied? And the students think it's a joke from a neighboring college that they're pulling their leg and they're so they're like oh sure yeah she can she can come to our school and here a few weeks later elizabeth blackwell appears she's a real person she's tenacious she's gonna you know take all the classes she can take she's not going to take any guff from anyone um the, the men treated her okay there she had a pretty decent experience at, at college um she had a few instances where people would throw paper airplanes or she was asked not to come to anatomy class when they were discussing something delicate um, but she kind of pushed back and said, no, I'm going to go to class and, you know, I'm not going to take these, these disturbances. Um, I'm going to get my degree and be done. And then she went um, to Europe to get advanced training. She went to Paris. Um, she went to England to study at hospitals there because really that was one of the biggest problems is first you had to pry your way into medical school. But then if you could manage to do that, there was nowhere to train after that. There was nowhere to do an internship that would accept a woman. So they, most of them went to Europe. Uh, most of these women. And so, in fact, it, uh, I just want to interrupt you for a second. She went and looked for, you know, she wanted to become a doctor. And you tell the story of, you know, we all have heard about Florence Nightingale, famous nurse. And they were at some point uh, friends. But that kind of, they had a huge disagreement. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, they met um, when she first went to London uh, to train at a hospital there, and they were great friends. And this is when Florence is feeling very stifled and stuck at home as, you know, as a daughter and, you know, future wife, and she doesn't want this kind of life. Um, so I think Elizabeth Blackwell really inspires her to kind of pursue her dream. And then when Elizabeth Blackwell comes back a few years later, um, Florence is famous by this point for her work in Crimean War, and she actually is the one who writes a letter of recommendation that gets Elizabeth Blackwell's name on the medical register so she can practice medicine in England. So she's technically the first woman, even though Lizzie, uh, Elizabeth Garrett uh, is, you know, the first practicing woman who, who earned her degree in England. Um, Elizabeth Blackwell is actually the first one on the medical register legally allowed to practice in England. Um, but so... When Elizabeth comes back the second time to, to England, about 10 years later, she wants to establish a hospital for women with Florence Nightingale. So she, she wants to use the money, the fund that, that the public has raised for Florence um, to, to open a hospital where she would have a college where women could train to be doctors and nurses. And Florence is like, no one's going to go for that. We don't have enough money for that, first of all. Because she wanted to open a big place up in, out in the country. She's like, no, no, we just want to, let's just open a little school attached to a hospital that's already existing, you know, and it's just going to be for training nurses. That, that's it. We're not going to train doctors. 
women, basically Florence didn't think that women should be doctors. They should just be nurses and that's fine. So that's where they had a big kind of falling out. They, they never really recovered their relationship after that. She, Elizabeth Blackwell comes back to America, just upset that Florence couldn't get back, you know, have her back on this idea of opening a, a medical school for women. And that's the thing. He even had a woman who had done something with her life who couldn't imagine women going any further. You know, it's that cap. Yes, women are supposed to be nurses, not doctors. So we have Elizabeth Blackwell, but Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell, one of the first to get a, a medical degree. And then you talk about two others, uh, two other women. Um, Lizzie Anderson, um, Garrett Anderson, and Sophia Jazz, Jazz Blake. So how are these three women connected? The more I researched, the more points of overlap and intersect I found. It was really fascinating. Um, I chose these three women because they worked together to found the Women's Medical School in London, the first one in the UK. Um, but the more I dug, the more overlap I found, and it was fascinating to me. So the first, the original, is Elizabeth Blackwell, of course. She, um, a biography is written of her in a women's magazine in England, and Lizzie Garrett reads it. So that's her first introduction, Lizzie's introduction to the idea of a woman being a doctor. Um, then a few months later, Elizabeth Blackwell is touring England, giving uh, lectures talking about how great it is to have a career as a woman, how great it is to be fulfilled in a job and why not medicine. Um, so Lizzie goes to these lectures and she's very inspired by this. She gets to meet Elizabeth Blackwell afterward and she's like, oh, wait a minute, maybe maybe this is what I want to do because she's really bored at home and you know, waiting to be a wife, same kind of deal as Florence Nightingale. And she, that's not what she wants. She wants to study. She wants to busy her brain. She wants to have a purpose. Um, so then, uh, Elizabeth Blackwell is also the reason why Sophia Dix Blake is interested in medicine, but in a more roundabout way. So uh, Elizabeth Blackwell establishes a women's medical college and a women's hospital in New York. And one of her uh, co-creators there is kind of her protege is Marie. Um, and Marie, very soon after they, they establish it, Marie moves to Boston to kind of recreate this. So there's a women's medical college in Boston, and then she starts a hospital, women's hospital in Boston also. So Sophia Jex Blake is already friends with Lizzie Garrett. They kind of move in the same circles in London. They don't exactly get along. Sophia is very bold, very brash. She kind of says whatever's on her mind. She has the greatest comebacks ever. I love Sophia. Um, <laughs> to have that quick wit, her mind, oh, it's incredible. Um, and to not care about what you know anyone thinks, just to say your mind. But not everyone you know, like, likes that about her <laughs> at the time. So Sophia's dream, even when she is working with helping Lizzie Garrett um, to try and get into these medical schools, she doesn't really think about becoming a doctor herself yet. Um, it's when Sophia goes to America. Sophia's big dream is to open a school, just a school for girls, not necessarily a medical school. She wants to open a school for women because she had a terrible time at school and she wants other smart, boisterous girls to have a place where they can be themselves. Uh, where, like she wasn't allowed to be. So she goes to America on this tour of colleges because America is, has a few colleges at this point that allow women, that train women in co-ed spaces or just for women. 
Uh, so she goes to Oberlin College, which is one of the oldest places that accepts women in the US. And she goes to a couple other places. She's talking to female academics, um, just kind of about what it looks like to, to have a women's college, to, to train women at an advanced level. So then her, her trip starts and ends in Boston, right? So she meets these women that had worked with Elizabeth Blackwell and then moved to Boston. So she is inspired by the women at the women's hospital in Boston that finally become a doctor. And then she actually attends Elizabeth Blackwell's um, medical college in New York for a few months, but then her father passes away and she has to go back to England to be with her family. But yeah, the, the more I dug, the more overlap, the more connections. There's so many points of connection, but just they, they so none of these three women really got along. I, I don't think in essence, they but they had to put aside their differences and their ideas about how to be successful at allowing women to finally be accepted as doctors um, to build this school for women, to, to make it happen, to say, okay, we don't get along. You're not the, the best person for this job. I don't think you're doing it the right way, but okay, we're going to do this. We're going to make a school and we're going to make it successful. So what was it like medical school back then? Was it as, um, as structured and, and as long as it is now with res residency and medical school and internship and so on? What was it like back then? Uh, I was utterly shocked by how little medical schooling you went through at the time. I mean, so this is the point when America is like kind of really turning it over from apprenticeships and going into, you know, you have to go to college to get a degree. The year that Elizabeth goes to college is the year that the American Medical Association is born. So basically, this is kind of when we start to take things seriously. But even then, it's only like two years of school and, and like an apprenticeship or residency somewhere. And then um, you write a thesis and that's kind of it. It's basically like an undergraduate degree in America, which really surprised me. There were men graduating with a medical degree that had never attended a real birth. So there's men showing up at, at births and, you know, they know about as much as the woman knows and these poor women <laughs> deal with that. But um in, in the UK, it, was, it seemed a little more stringent. There was like three, three and a half or four years of, of college. Um, so, but it was still basically like an undergrad degree. And a lot of times these students just weren't paying attention. They were just kind of there to be there. They were really a boisterous bunch. They liked to fight and <laughs> drink. Um, and it was just shocking how like medicine was not how we see it today. It was not a prestigious degree. It was not a great job. It's what you went into if you failed at being a lawyer or a politician or a priest, basically. <laughs> so, so, so if that were the case, why did these women push so hard to become doctors? I think well, one of the things that a lot of them said after the riots um, was now we kind of see why we're needed more than ever. We see how these men are acting, how far these men will go. These are the kind of men they're gonna, that are going to be treating patients in a few years, you know, this is what we're dealing with. This is why we need a better quality of person going to medical school. Women need to be able to have women that they can talk to, that they can trust, so that they can tell all their problems to, and really be understood about what's wrong. So, and they opened the school. How many women actually became doctors out of, you know, this, this school? Did it catch on? Uh, were there a lot of students or was it just something that they catered to um, and kind of had to really put out some PR to, to get, you know, 
women in? Um, for the women's hospital in New York, they were turning people away, the patients away. There were people that wanted to deliver their babies there. They, 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 they had way more patients than they could handle. I think the school uh, was very who they would accept. They tried to model their, their school on the, the European model of, you know, a little bit more stringent, more requirements. Um, basically, anybody could get into medical school that wanted to if you were a man in, in America. So you just kind of had to like put your, num your name in there and then you'd, you'd get in. Um, so they kind of tried to raise the bar. There were definitely, um, they, had, they had enough students in New York and they definitely had enough students in London and then it caught on. There was more and more every year for sure. Um, I don't think there was a problem. They had other problems with the school, like they needed funding. Um, they needed, you know, to have a place where they, they could take their MD exams at the end that was like, allowed them to, to then have their license to practice. So that they, it was getting these institutions to accept them. That was the problem. It wasn't that they didn't have enough students, not at all. Well, that seems so amazing. Um, what was it about these three women that really pulled you to, you know, to them. There had to have been, you know, other women. What, what specifically pulled you to even start researching? And I know that it took you three years of steady research. So how did you go about, you had heard of Elizabeth Blackwell. Um, where did you start? Uh, I think I, the original pitch for this book had a lot more women. There's so many more women that I wanted to cover because there's a women's medical school that was in Philadelphia that's near me that I was like, oh, I should focus on this because it's nearby. But then that ended up being the part I cut and <laughs> focusing on these three women in the UK. And so I just wanted to go back to the UK. That's all. I, I lived there for three years. So <laughs> <laughs> okay. <to> get back. <laughs> but in the meantime, you wound up finding some really interesting, unknown stories about these women and what they went through. I, I think it was, I was really intrigued because I had never heard of this particular story. Like, like I said, nobody really talks about how Elizabeth Blackwell went to London and did this all over again. She did it in New York. Yes, we know that. But we, we don't hear about this, this other school in London. And also, Sophia, she's the one that, that really drew me into the story because she was in the riot in Edinburgh. She was one of the seven women who were trying to go to their exam with the men and just there was this huge riot. So she's part of this Edinburgh Seven as they're known. But she, it was her idea to establish the school in London. She, she writes to the other two Elizabeths and says, you know, you're like the known women in medicine you have to do this with me or I'm not going to succeed. It's going to look really bad for me if you're not participating in this. You're not condoning this. So you have to do this with me. As much as I, we don't get along, you have to do this with me. And then, so they, they start working on the school. And then as soon as Sophia goes to Ireland to take her MD exam, while she's gone, they have a meeting and decide that she's not the right kind of person to be, you know, heading the school, to be the public face of the school. She's not a good ambassador. She's too angry. She, you know, says whatever's over, whatever's on her mind. So that's not good <laughs> for us as a public institution. So we're gonna kind of kick her out while she's gone. So this London Medical School for Women is known as Elizabeth Garrett School because Elizabeth Garrett took it over. She became the dean and she like built it from from there. But it wasn't her school. It was Sophia's school. So that kind of 
that story really drew me in as well. This idea that this unremembered person who was their idea when they got pushed out just because they had not so great personality. And one of the things I know that you've noted is that there wasn't a lot of um, information on Sophia because she had uh, instructions after she died that her notes should be torn up and thrown away. So how did you even, you know, where did you find this information? I was very lucky in that she, Sophia herself wrote a lot. She wrote a lot of essays talking about, she like wrote essays about um, the history of women in medicine. She wrote, um, you know, basically an autobiography sort of that deal about what happened uh, it, it, during her time at Edinburgh University. Um, a lot of the newspapers covered it. She was kind of a newspaper darling because she was so outspoken because at public meetings, she would just, you know, go off, start talking about like, this, how she was treated and whose fault it was. And it was this person, that person. So the media loved to report on her, her talks, her hijinks, her antics, but um, her partner, uh, Margaret, actually, uh, after she died, after Sophia died, Margaret was a, also an author. She wrote many novels and she was a doctor. They were doctors together. Um, so Margaret wrote a biography of Sophia using her diaries and her letters before she destroyed them. So it was not all of them, but she took key passages and things like that. So basically the bulk of these biography is Sophia's words themselves. So that was definitely very helpful. Um, I, I would not have been able to write this without that piece for sure. Uh, but yeah, when I went to the archives, there's essentially nothing of Sophia's there because she requested that it be destroyed upon her death. So it's really interesting to think about, you know, when people are writing diaries and personal letters that you don't think a hundred years in the future, someone's going to be poking their nose around in that private information. But Sophia was ready. She was like, no, you're not, you're not going to have that chance. You know, we're going to get it destroyed. So they, they were the start. Um, where has medicine and women, where has uh, the field taken women? Well, what's interesting is that uh, Lizzie Garrett's daughter actually also became a surgeon, um, and she and her partner established um, some wartime hospitals and another hospital, and they were kind of the first to pioneer women treating men, as well as women treating other women, so that, you know, this next generation, we're kind of easing the, the you know, the societal expectations even more, so um, I think that uh, women's participation in medicine has kind of gone up and down. You know, we've had social uh, changes as far as like expectations of women to be in the household, that kind of thing, you know. So our interest in having careers kind of goes along the flow of what, what we're kind of expecting at the time, what kind of where patriarchy is at, I guess. <laughs> um, but so it's, it's gone up and down. And right now, for the past two years or so, there's been more women medical students than men. So we're kind of tipping the scales finally. The problem is, after, as you go further up uh, in line there, further down the line of education or of leadership, is that where the numbers of women really start to dwindle. Um, so we definitely need to work on, how, you know, medicine is still many, many ways a boys club, um, especially many specialties. Uh, very, a lot of sexism still, a lot of inflexibility with, you know, caregiving needs that, that often fall on women. Uh, so there's a long way to go yet, but we're making we're making strides, I think. Well, the pandemic um, hurt or help? 
I think it, it helps show the importance of women doctors. I mean, I, I firmly believe that we have research to show that women are better doctors. Um, and without these Victorian women, that you know, there wouldn't be doctors to welcome you into the hospital right now. It wouldn't be women pulmonologists to, to treat you, to help you to be developing vaccines. But at the same time, you have a lot of women have been pushed out of their careers because of the childcare you know, crisis, basically. Uh, schools being closed, remote schooling, someone's got to be home, you got to choose between your career and your kids schooling basically right now. So I think there's a lot of early career um, people that have caregiving duties, people with young children or with older parents that are really struggling right now and that just kind of lost their career. And we, it's something we lost as a society to, to lose them. So what do you hope people take away from this unbelievable book? Um, I hope people realize that it's sexism has never been okay and someone has always stood up to say this is not okay. We like to excuse uh, things back in history as oh that's just the way it was done that's how it was but there's always been as, as, as long as there's been racism and sexism there's been someone to stand up and say no this isn't okay this is it's not how it should be done. Uh, I think this story is as infuriating as it is inspiring to see all that these women went through and that they they never once quit and that they not only did they get their medical degrees, but they made sure that other women could also get their medical degrees in the future, too. So I was going to ask you, what would you like to tell our listeners? You basically said it just now, but do you have something more succinct that you want to, what would you like people to take away from, from our conversation? I think just, yeah, just don't give up. Like it, even in the face of, of harassment and sexism and, you know, I, I know it's, it can be bleak at times, especially for women in medicine, you know, experiencing harassment, but just looking back at these examples of all that they were facing and, you know, that fact they could still overcome that. It's just incredible to me. So what are you working on now? Anything in particular? <laughs> I'm supposed to be developing three possible new book ideas. Um, I have two so far, so I need to think of the next one <laughs> just to, to uh, pitch to my editor to see which one they want me to, to develop further and work on more. So I, yeah, I'm just hoping that my book sells well enough to sell my next book. <laughs> But anything to do with um, kind of hidden histories of women in science is, is all is all my bag. I love it. So Women in White Coats, How the First Women Doctors Changed the World. So Olivia, where can people um, find out more about you or are you on social media? Where can they find you? Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Libby Campbell. Uh, on my website is ocampbellwriter.com. If anybody wants a signed book, uh, they're selling copies at newtownbookshop.com. That's in Newtown, Pennsylvania. Olivia, um, I thank you so much for being here. And, you know, your book can be found on all independent bookstores online, uh, Amazon, of course. And um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please share it with another person you think would be interested. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. Join me next week when I talk to another extraordinary, inspiring woman. 
Today's podcast is sponsored by Upper Deck, the national full-service virtual gym that has reinvented the at-home workout experience. Upper Deck has more than 30 strength and cardio classes a week. Named Best Fitness Club in the Gold Coast for 2020, Upper Deck brings the gym to you with live coaching and motivation. Upper Deck's unique classes are interactive. They have two coaches, one leading your workout and one keeping her eyes on you, providing feedback and encouragement in real time. For a free week of unlimited virtual classes with no strings attached, email info at UpperDeckFitness.com and let Upper Deck know you're a Sylvia and me listener. This has been a Life of Prey production.